<laughs> Mate, you've got to love Windows, right? Right now, it's showing all my folders as Photoshop. It's showing the Photoshop icon. Really? Yeah. So annoying. <laughs> One time, all my AS files got the Warcraft 3 icon, <laughs> which is an orc's head. <laughs> that was the best day ever. So it's, what, what episode is this? 11. 11. Welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast, episode 11, with me, Ian Lobb. And me, Seb Lee Delisle. Seb underscore L-Y at Twitter. And Ian Lobb at Twitter. There you go. That's easy, isn't it? And I think we're yep. sticking with the hashtag Creative Coding for the time being, at least. <laughs> yes. Considering <laughs> no one else had any other suggestions. The well, only one people liked was Podmax. Podmax. <laughs> which is from the Adam and Joe show. Um, and there was so, another one that someone suggested, which was very long. Quite oh, Ian and Seb's awesome creative coding podcast or something, yeah. was it? Cool, man. So what have you been up to? Well, um, I just wanted to say all oh, we've got coming up on this week's show, we can be all like official and stuff because we've okay. actually got some planned stuff. So um, I've just been at the IO Festival, which was amazing. And on this episode, I've got some interviews um, with Ben Fry, one of the founders of Processing, uh, Golan Levin, who's an awesome creative code god at Carnegie Mellon University. <laughs> Um, and Dave Schroeder, who runs the IO Festival, talking to him about the conference and, and how he got it set up. It's pretty interesting. And I'm saving two interviews for next week's or next episode with the other processing founder, Casey Reese, and software artist, Marius Watts. So we've got wow. that in the next episode. So that's pretty cool. Um, You've been we, busy, boy. I've been pretty busy. I have been pretty busy. So um, we'll check those out in a bit. And we've also got a new feature called... Things that Ian has learned. And I think we need to put, like, reverb on that or something. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll do it in post, don't worry. <laughs> you better you better follow through on that now. I better, hadn't I? Yeah. So um, there's been some other stuff going on, quite a lot of things. Um, I was at Flashcoders New York before IO Festival. I did a little talk. It was kind of like, what the flux? But mm-hmm. there was something quite interesting that I found, because one of my arguments in what the flux is... You know, although things are changing, don't really worry if you're a flash coder because um, everyone that filled in my survey at the time, or at least the majority of people, were still getting um, seeing an increase in the demand for flash work. I think it was like sure. 51%. Um, but I just did a little, there's probably about 30 people there, so it was pretty busy for the size of room that it was. Um, and I just asked around the room whether that was still the case. And basically, the majority of pretty much everyone there. Um, had noticed a, a pretty sharp decline in the amount of flash work in the last few months. I mean, well, that makes sense if they work for agencies. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think that, yeah, and I think that speaks to the, the shift in what flash is being used for. Well, I don't know. I don't quite know what it means, but it just means that I need to change the arguments in my what the flux talk because they're not really relevant sure. anymore. You need you to make it more pessimistic now. I need to, I need to be like, yeah, learn <laughs> something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I got into a bit of thing on Twitter the other day with like Keith Peters. There you go. I've got the drop the name there. Yeah. Oh, well um, done. We um, haven't mentioned <laughs> Keith for a while, have we? No, we, it's tradition that we mention him every episode. We said Keith last episode, but not Peters. Yeah, and, and you were you were vehemently defending your your decision to only support one language. Well, because basically people were saying, oh, you should you should learn another language, or you should if you've only used one technology you know, one platform this week, you've done something wrong. And it's like, yeah. well, says who? 
Why? That's like there's no it 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 doesn't make you a better person to work on more than one technology. It doesn't prove anything. Um, it doesn't make you a better coder. In fact, a lot of the time you're just doing like tech, like you know, one oh one hello world type stuff in each program. I I don't see why I don't see what's controversial about saying if you're happy just with the technology you're using just use that don't worry about whether you should be it's like it's kind of like status anxiety or you know keeping up with the joneses of like oh am i learning enough different programming languages or you know am i keeping up with the latest technology well, it's like well w- what you make is the important thing and if you're happy with your at what the things you're making it doesn't really matter what technology you're using yeah i mean i, I think you've got a point right absolutely but i also do think that technology is always changing so it's going to be a time when you have to learn something new and if right, we're so, and okay, things, first, right first of all technology actually isn't changing like the technology that you use on the whole is doesn't change and that's that's nonsense of course it changes it changes no, no, all but, the time but it doesn't because like for example as2 say still exists or as action script one still exists are you, are you, are you advocating people. the best practice of still using as2 i'm not but <laughs> but i can i kind of see a point now this is a really weird thing for me to say but i can kind of see a point of people who especially like there's a lot of like you know games and you know not really amateur but like indie and kind of hobby games guys yeah who still program all their stuff in as1 they really don't care about what their code looks like yeah they just want to you know do the express their creativity yeah by making a game and for those people it's like you know why why not why should they if it's get if they're getting what they want out of it and people can still see their games because you know they still work I guess there's, um, but there's a difference between someone just knocking out a little fun flash game for fun and maybe making some money out of it on the independent games circuit, and someone who wants a career in programming as a programmer and try yeah, to ensure, yeah, you know, ensure the quality I mean, that, of their that work. Is, that is absolutely yeah. true, of course. Yes, but yeah. I mean, I guess so. I yeah. guess it's sort of. I think for us, as people who are trying to encourage best practice amongst coders and perhaps have some experience in these areas, you mm. know, it's probably a good thing for us to kind of advocate the fact that you're probably, if, you know, if you're serious about this, you're going to have to learn some stuff. <laughs> you know? Sure. I mean, I'd rather people learn the kind of best practices and conventions of the technology they're using yeah. most first rather than learn a bit of five different technologies. Yeah, yeah I guess it's, it's good yeah. to have one... I mean, I guess I learned a lot by developing the deep understanding of ActionScript and Flash that I did, you know. I guess my programming skills developed considerably over that time, even though I was focusing mm. on one thing. And Yeah, I mean, don't you think that by focusing on a particular technology, you know, your understanding of programming is transcends technology in a way? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're probably because right. Because you start think to think you... about the bigger picture of, like, just solving problems and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's Cause, a fair because point. you're not thinking about syntax and things like that. Mm. So, so I think we both have a point, <laughs> yeah. but we're going to have to keep yeah. this this stuff short because we've got lots to fit in this episode. Yeah. Um, just a quick couple of other news things. Um, I don't think we did. We talk about WebGL last week and the security issues. Um, we talked. We spoke about it last week, but we didn't. We weren't the some annoyingly as always happens. We were scooped as soon as. Like we published the episode, the, the the story had changed basically. Yeah. So what? Which was where had we got to? Well, what happened was some people debunked a bit the Microsoft security report, right? Yeah. And said actually this is probably just like fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes. Yeah. So it was the Google engineer who said who basically just said this was complete fud from from Microsoft. 
Um, and actually, I've seen some um, so, some suggestion that perhaps makes this more likely in in that uh, a very similar denial of service. Um, apparently, Silverlight Five had some of those very same issues that they're accusing Firefox of in terms of hanging the processor and and taking control away from your computer. So that right. to me suggests that. Um, that you know it was perhaps just a bit of spin on Microsoft's part there. Mm. But I mean, there was another related story, which uh, is Google are developing a, a DirectX implementation of OpenGL. Oh no, it's, it's WebGL, isn't it? They're, of WebGL. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean OpenGL. I meant WebGL. Yeah, which I guess is kind of similar to what Adobe are doing with Molehill, right? Hmm. Yeah, and they're going to open source it, which I guess not that Microsoft really use open source technology, but it would kind of put the ball back in their court in terms of i.e. It's called the Angle Project and it does seem to be WebGL based on, on DirectX so um, it looks like it's, it's not a full OpenGL implementation. Sure. And then there was another related story mm-hmm. which was to do with Linux support for hardware acceleration in Firefox. Oh yeah, right? yeah. No, it started off by me breaking the story on my blog that, <laughs> <laughs> that Adobe are dropping Linux for, you know, they're dropping the, the 3D hardware acceleration on Linux for their molehill. Um, basically, mm. they've, they've claimed that the Linux drivers are just too unreliable. And of course, yep. everyone was like, oh, yeah, typical, including me. I'm kind of like, well, is, shouldn't Flash Player be kind of cross-platform, even if it's like a fairly limited platform? You know, that's surely what they were one of their remits um, but apparently mm-hmm. Firefox were also having similar issues um, getting WebGL to run on Linux as well just so there clearly is somewhat of a, an issue with um, these drivers but I'm pretty sure that Firefox won't give up implementing WebGL on Linux um, but of course no. Adobe have um, and then also there was the uh, Google Swiffy have you seen that? yeah I wasn't blown away by it to be honest though no? well I guess it's, it's just basically the same as Wallaby right? where you just take a Swift and convert it to HTML5. I guess unlike Wallaby, well, no, Wallaby publishes from... I think it takes an FLA, doesn't it? I can't remember. Yeah, whereas this takes a Swift, right? Yeah. But this supports ActionScript, which Wallaby doesn't. Yeah, I haven't tested that out. I did, but I... Well, you see, yeah, I mean, I did test it out because I've got, like, you know, 10, 10 years' worth of Flash stuff. Yeah. Almost, well, not almost, nothing that I tested run. I tested about 10 different Swifts. Well, like AS2 games and stuff. AS1 games, banners, <laughs> uh, AS2, yeah, AS1 and 2 games and banners and interactive things. And, sure. Yeah, nothing ran. Okay. And the reason is there's lots of unsupported APIs. I see. Of things they couldn't convert to JavaScript or didn't want to or mm. whatever, which unfortunately means that really it's only actually for new build AS2 work. Right. So you just do it custom and convert it. Yeah, but who, AS2? Come on. <laughs> you were just saying that it was fine to use AS2. Make up your mind. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I mean, but it's fine if you're just like, you know, like we said, if you're, you know, mm. an independent, you know, artist making Flash games or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's way different to if you're in a commercial environment and you're kind of polluting the world with more AS2 code that no one can understand. Yeah. I mean, from, from my point of view, I mean, I tested it out with the exact same uh, fairly complex animations that I tested Wallaby with and whereas wallaby failed on a couple of browsers you know flipping things upside down and doing weird things with them (laughs) um i found that swiffy actually worked really well of course it was just a very limited test 
But I do also think, you know, and I, I talked to some of the Adobe guys about this, that I felt like their approach with Wallaby was slightly weird in that it kind of spits out this fairly Frankensteinian mess of JavaScript, CSS, and HTML5, and SVG. Sure. It's kind of all munched up together. And really what I would like them to do is create a format, you know, that describes this Swift information that you can then use a library to render. And it looks to me, certainly on the surface, that that's what Google has done. So I, I feel like that approach is is slightly cleaner, you know, separating out right. the, the content from the implementation. No, but what was the what's the standalone animation tool that Adobe have made for doing web stuff? Is it Edge, the HTML5 one? Yeah. Yeah, so that's Edge, and there's a few others in that space. There's also um, Hype, uh, and uh, there's one coming out called Animatable as well. So I think See, Hype's confusing, because I get that confused with Hype Framework, which yeah. is something completely different. It's pretty confusing, it? um, but I, I think we should probably have a look at all those in a future ep- yeah. episode. But um, now I think we need to get on with the interviews. Oh, I've, got, I've just got one more thing to okay. say, which is on, you know, we talked about Jangaroo in episode oh, yeah. one or two. Yeah. Um, and one of my complaints about that was that it needed you to use uh, Maven to compile your your stuff. Uh-huh. And basically they're dropping that requirement now. So there's going to be just a, co- a command line compiler. Mm. Um, okay, so that's good. Which is just like a Java program yeah, that will just convert your, your Flash code into HTML5 code. And what it means is that you could now create the kind of GUI tool that I imagined. Yeah. Right? Okay. You could make an air app that that just calls into this command line thing on you know, in the background. Yeah. So you actually just you know can do something nice where you point it to the directory you want to convert and just press a big button. <laughs> but that doesn't exist yet. Someone needs to build that. But I think now the capability is there for that. So. Okay. Cool. So so some some very interesting things happening in that space. I I sort of have mixed feelings about all of that stuff. But let's um let's save that for another time. Okay. We've never talked about um, GWT either. No. Which we should. It's not something so I know an awful lot about. It's not something honest. I know about either. Maybe we could find an expert if we've got a listener who knows something about it. Yeah. So that's the Google Web on the Toolkit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, Java to, to, to web yeah. conversion, basically. And, and Google make all their Gmail and stuff yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, is it all of Gmail? Is it just some back-end stuff and not the front-end, or is it the whole thing? I thought that GWT I mean? was just for front-end stuff. But... No, sorry, I mean, I mean client-side, but yeah. I mean the visual, the display of stuff mm. versus just kind of functions that do things. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, not really, but let's see if we've got any listeners who know anything <laughs> about it. <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm super like determined to move this podcast episode on <laughs> this week. I, cool. I've never felt more like fired up um, because I was at the I.O. Festival last week and it was pretty exciting. There's a lot of really amazing things going on. You know, it just had all the top speakers from the sort of creative coding. So there were the, the guys that set up processing, the people that set up open frameworks. There were some really cool data fizz people Um there was the guys from MakerBot and also Arduino, the Spark Fun people. So mm-hmm. there was just loads and loads going on. Um, and it sort of blew my mind a little bit. I've just been kind of reeling from that. I've got loads of ideas about some things that I want to do. But I managed to uh, snag a few interviews, um, as we mentioned at the top of the show. And so, yeah, I think we should just probably play them in. First up, I managed to get Ben Fry. So Ben is 
is one of the two founders of Processing. And I managed to corner him at the Walker Museum. <laughs> this was on the last day after a bike ride and everyone was talking. So sorry about the sound quality. Uh, what's your favourite car and project then? What are you working on at the moment? Oh, I, um, uh, <laughs> I'm never terribly happy when I'm with them, like while I'm working on them. I kind of, um, really? I don't know. Like no, it, when you start of, a project, it's nice, right? When you, when you start, it's nice, yeah. I, when I guess you're, are you at that or, halfway or through point where it's, yeah, it's or like right, becomes work? <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or maybe finishing it. That I, yeah. I had a, a project that was looking at typography with sort of pulling type from random uh, PDFs and using that to reconstruct a copy of Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein, and that I managed to just finally finish up a couple weekends ago after having that be something that was sort of backburner, a backburner project for several years. And so it's, it's nice to actually like get that out of the to-do pile or folder or you know, whatever. That so that, sort of, that was a personal project? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, it seems like you do so much, right? I mean, you've got your business and then your academic work and also, of course, you're making processing, right? Which is a huge undertaking. Sure, yeah. How do you find the time to do all of that stuff? I do you just I, not have a life? I don't have kids, so that that makes it a, a lot easier. Um, and just uh, and just work a lot, I suppose. My wife is also very supportive and sort of keeping everything moving along and running and all that. So, so yeah, we'll see how long I can actually get away with that sort of lifestyle. But <laughs> I think for a lot of people in in design or art or you know basically any anywhere that you're making things, it's kind of you can't stop making stuff. Otherwise, it's like you can either be like uh, insanely busy, but the alternative is like being bored, which is far, <laughs> far worse. And I guess it's surprising that you have built this huge piece of software that's very rich and deep on your own. And obviously, we like there's the community of people who all you know sort of uh, contribute in different ways. And um, but it is, it's been surprising kind of watching just how the project's been picked up and that how. Uh, how things have grown in terms of number of users and things like that and that and hopefully just over time we'll have more and more people kind of all contributing to that core and getting more more involved in sort of moving the software along and that I think one of the things that with an open source project too that you want to keep people away from thinking about sort of waiting for the next the next release or the next version that you're really trying to change how people think about it in terms of they don't necessarily need to wait for us to fix something that they can they can do things themselves or other contributors can kind of do uh, do libraries and other extensions that kind of get them there as well. And so, you know, to the extent that we can have that kind of happen, it's, you know. So you feel like it's not just the two of you, as a whole big community yeah. that are helping? I think, um, I think the two of us are the, the ones who lose sleep over it as far as, you know, making a, making particular deadlines and things like that. But especially recently with the work that Andres has done with uh, the GL graphics thing, side of things, I was able to uh, fund him for a little bit of that work because Google was uh, had given us some funding for the uh, some of the Android work. And, and so I was able to do that initial thing, but then he, even after finishing that, he volunteered an enormous amount of his time to, like, really move that library along and also doing work with the video and just he's been incredibly dedicated to like making this really amazing you know sort of thing and so so that's been really cool to watch and then we have folks like Florian Yannette who's um, just recently been working on this uh, JavaScript mode that you know make it much easier for people to do either transition to JavaScript or just be able to move back and forth is um, really a nice way of, of working and so 
uh, it'll be great to see how that how that turns out. And, and how does the uh, the collaboration between you and Casey work? Is there a clear division of responsibilities? <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that funny? <laughs> no, I, uh, I was trying to think of how snide I want to be about it, or if I want to. Um, you, you can be snide. Yeah, no, it's, it's we, like we nothing it's not but nothing but bickering, and you know. Um, no, that it's it's funny. So Casey and I have never actually lived in the same city while working on the processing project, much less sort of the same state or continent. In some cases, that uh, when we started the project, we kind of we sketched it out while like literally sketched it out on paper while he was still at the media lab, and then he had the good sense to graduate and leave, and and then he went and taught at uh, Ivrea in Italy. And I stayed at the Media Lab, and then after that, uh, he was in uh, UCLA and Los Angeles, and so we've never actually been in the same city. And so there's a lot of a lot of email, there's occasional phone calls, but I think we we spend so much time working together on different projects while at the Media Lab. You know, we each know how the other works, and that have a great deal of trust in how we're approaching things and how much we're working, and you know, things like that. I think otherwise, it's like it would drive us completely nuts and <laughs> be. Uh, you know, just totally impossible. So yeah, I mean, you're on opposite coast right now. Yeah, right. So it's I'm I'm in Boston and he's in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, you know, so it's also fun in the in the rare cases like uh, a conference like this where we can actually be where we both get invited so that you know the two of us can actually spend some time together. And in the past, that was actually also how part of how like sort of major jumps in the software like actually happened was that you just know get we together and bash it out. yeah that we can actually. Uh, you know, chances that we had to do that, like the big beta release happened as a result of we we received a, an award from the Tokyo Type Directors Club, so we were in Japan for a week and we um, <laughs> spent a, a great deal of our afternoons there, you know, sort of working away on hashing things out and so good for the project and, <laughs> you know. Right. So. I'm interested, I always ask this of everyone like who is involved in this kind of creative code community. I'm always interested to see their route into it, either from a design background or from a programming background. How did that work for you? So mine's a little odd. I, I started both design and programming at fairly young ages that I like I was very interested in doing, you know, in design and typography and wanted to, you know, like do advertising or something like that that I thought seemed really interesting and clever and uh, I would design things at school and so like did did a my first sort of actual printed thing was in seventh grade doing a logo for the school and you know things like that and then later in high school was working professionally at a design firm and also a you know local company. Yeah so that was the design side and then on the, the programming side was in similar time period sort of interested in programming is kind of a separate thing and that uh, basically those interests evolved as parallel uh, tracks and that I actually kind of didn't want to mix them because I didn't think they really went together all that well and so uh, I kind of kept them very separate and really until seeing John Maida's work and having a chance to go work at the Media Lab and sort of seeing this other way of merging disciplines that wasn't just doing interface design or something like that. So, so finally um, Processing 2 is nearly ready right? How's that going? It's uh, we'll, we'll see Casey said early August and our first week in August and I said last week in August so we'll we'll see where it uh, where it comes out along in there so well, I can't wait to see it so anyway thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me I appreciate Terrific. it All right. thank you so it was it was really nice to meet Ben he's such a such a super nice guy and um, you know he'd, you'd always spot him a mile away because he wears the loudest flowery shirts ever so but just a, a really great guy and it was really nice to see what they're doing with processing too it's like some really cool stuff you can just like publish and test straight to android cool. um, and javascript as well just from within the the normal processing id so definitely we should definitely take a look at that uh, when it comes out and also um 
in the next episode of the podcast, I've, I've also got another interview with the other founder of Processing, Casey Reese, and that was really interesting. So next up, we have Golan Levin, who uh, I think would probably, I, I'm going to call him the godfather of creative code, <laughs> certainly he seems to have had a, a big influence on all, all the kind of leading names in, in, uh, in this in this area, cool. you know, everyone mentions Golan as, as, as being quite influential. So really good. I, I managed to get Golan um, and I asked him what exactly had been uh, what he'd been working on lately. Uh, I got a few things going on. Uh, first, I'm a you know, recent parent, so that's, that's, that's <laughs> just kicking my ass. And that's, that's a big project. It's, it's a massive project that I'm going to be working on for 20 years or, <laughs> or, or more. Um, that's one thing. That's, uh, that's great. I got, I got a couple kids. Then um, robots and lasers and eye tracking and all that is sort of where I'm, I'm currently thinking right now. Recently, some face tracking software became available that... Uh, has previously only existed in research laboratories. And in the background right now, uh, a few of us uh, are hammering on this in, in ways that I think are really interesting. Um, so I'm working on a collaboration with Zachary, Lieber Zachary Lieberman and Daito Manabe and uh, Kyle McDonald um, using this, this software that understands where all the different parts of the face are. And I think we're going to see a lot of uh, installations and performances that, that use this. It's very interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's a kind of a, a game-changing thing when you can really understand uh, the configuration of someone's face. It is such a, an important nonverbal means of expression. Is, is that an open source library that's coming out, or it, it will be like tomorrow? It's uh, Kyle has written an open source wrapper on it. Um, it's, there's still some constraints on on the the license of this stuff, but unlike the equivalent piece of software from, for example, this New Zealand company Face API, which is like a five thousand dollar you know Windows only kind of thing, this will be a cross platform thing that's free. But the guy who's released the the, the jewels uh, says you have to contact him for permission. Which is cool. Yeah, that's cool. It's like he just wants to know who's using it. That's all. Sure. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, I'm really interested in lasers. I think that I love lasers. I've been trying to get hold of some lasers to play with, but no one will give me any. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's funny. Uh, lasers right now are, are cheaper than ever. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, like you know, your standard you know five dollar laser pointer from China. Yeah. Uh, there's some scary stuff you can get from China. I just saw this the other day. Uh, uh, Thirty. Uh, 30 milliwatt handheld ultraviolet lasers. It's crazy. It's like a lightsaber. It's like it's like instantly blinding you. It's, it's the controllers that I've been a bit stuck on. There's a couple different uh, open source ways you can hack together. Um, so for doing laser for doing laser controlled displays like mm. XY. Yeah, display. that's what I want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Me too. I want to put asteroids on a big building with lasers. Um, there's a device called the Easy Laze USB, which is a USB interface to something called ILDA. ILDA right. is the International Laser Display Association Signaling Protocol, and that is the standard interface to all of the you know typical two thousand to five thousand dollar laser controllers. Right. What makes those laser controllers expensive then for doing like on a side of a building is like the laser tube, which costs a lot of money and I can hurt you. Yeah, there's some pretty serious health and safety issues, aren't there? Yeah, to do any kind of public display, you, you need to have someone who's licensed uh, according to the ILDA. They have people who are trained in the use of these things. So I'm going to build a mock-up that I think uses a low-power laser, and I'll, I'll photograph it in complete darkness so it yeah. looks really impressive. Lasers are amazing, though, aren't they? I mean, I just think they're so beautiful. Even you just get a little laser pointer and you just yeah. shine it around. It's oh, like, what's that company? Uh, UVA. They've been doing some beautiful oh, things yes, with lasers yeah, right now. Yeah. Building, like, the sofa and yeah, yeah. furniture with mirrors mm -hmm. and lasers, right. which is great. Um, so also doing some stuff with robots. Uh -huh. um, I'm at Carnegie Mellon, which is a, yeah. uh, it's a good university with a really amazing robotics institute, and they're very friendly. Um, and so just last week, we, we did some control of a Roomba because they had like a, like a, a 
huge pile these these Roomba creates. It's like the hacker version of the Roomba robot. It doesn't um, it doesn't have the vacuum. You just but it can go around. Yeah. So we're we're going to do some tactical graffiti with these things that I think would be sort of fun. Oh, cool. Uh, so yeah, something about like doing some sort of what I would call locative or visualizations or situated visualizations, which yeah. are basically like spray paintings uh, on streets, which visualize information about that specific zone. Like for example, crime statistics or what have you. And you just basically put it down. You set a timer so you get a getaway, and then this thing just goes around. Spraying, spraying paint everywhere. Am I right in thinking that your primary work is at CMU? Is that your main job? Uh, I, I, uh, yeah, well, so I do four things. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm a parent. Yes. Uh, I have my, my personal art practice. I make stuff because I have to, uh, or I, I go crazy. Yeah. Uh, I am an educator, mm-hmm. uh, and I was teaching a kind of full-time course load, uh, but that got cut in half so that I could also do the fourth thing, which is to direct a special laboratory at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, cool. So in addition to teaching, I also direct this research lab, which um, called the Studio for Creative Inquiry. And it's been around for 20 years, actually, and it, it was founded in the mid, mid to late 80s as a kind of Carnegie Mellon's media laboratory. Uh, and um, it's in the College of Fine Arts, so it's been drastically underfunded forever. But of course. but it's uh, it's my canvas for doing whatever the hell I want. I, I rewrote the mission when I took when I took the head of it. Uh, I rewrote the mission that uh, we support atypical, interdisciplinary, and interinstitutional projects at the intersection of art, science, technology, and culture. The key word there, though, is atypical, which is like yeah. that's my axe for splitting anything. Like I see. like if I whatever the we want to do is basically like well it's atypical so it's like you know it's it, it as long as i as long as that's the case because people are like oh does it have to be art and technology and i'm like mm, it has to be atypical and that that to me is is where is where it works i think a lot of the universities do have trouble with that sort of interdepartmental collaboration it seems to be something that on the whole well certainly in my experience that they don't seem to be that good at i was talking with steve Dietz just this morning here we are at the io festival and you know i said look if i had to synopsize this festival in like two words i'd say it's heroic hybridity yeah and what what you see, I mean, we were we were chatting uh, at the back of the room during Nick Felton's talk, and this is a guy. He's an unbelievable designer, but he's using you know he's he's harnessing all the power of computation and algorithmic and computational thinking to do design in a way that 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 probably only twenty people in the world can do well. Yeah. And I thought to me, you know, this guy is a heroic hybrid, and uh, universities to kind of get back to your question, are really lagging in their ability to, to wrap their minds around hybridity because they're designed to compartmentalize knowledge. Sure. And, um, you know, the, the very act of dividing knowledge into disciplines is, you know, which then get institutionally uh, um, manifest as edifices. This is a building for design. That's a building for technology. So what happens when you want to do design and technology? It's just... It's just it's, the universities can't keep up, and um, it strikes me that for the first time in you know since the universities were founded, that a lot of the uh, innovation is happening outside of the universities, and so they're having. To, I mean, perhaps CMU and and NYU are a couple of exceptions, but I certainly see a lot of them. No, you know, no. So, 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 a couple of things have have conspired here, right? One is that. Um, First of all, nowadays you just need thirty dollars to get an Arduino, and you can yeah. make pretty much fucking anything. Yes, right. The the other thing is um, the knowledge is is all available, and the community uh, it really does help to have a face to face community. But you can get that face to face community in a hacker space, yeah, like New York City Resistor or Hack Pittsburgh yeah. or you know uh, Dorkbot, which is all over the world. You can find these communities of of making which are are extra institutional, and learn the things you need to learn there. 
I, I will say this. I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of people at this conference who are, who are particularly well-educated. You have someone like Mark Hansen, who's great, and he's got a PhD in mathematics and statistics, and awesome, because he really he, he has that smarts, and he uses it very deftly. But you also have some people here who have no college degrees whatsoever. And I'm, I'm not sure if I should list people's names who, who don't have college degrees because it's kind of, it's, it's, it's maybe some people are a little embarrassed about it. But yeah. there are some, there are some in- people who are presenting here at I.O. who are among the elite group of, of like amazing artist designers working with computation who have no college degrees whatsoever. They, they went to, to college for a semester and they were like, this is f***ing stupid. <laughs> like, I can do this on my own. Like, why do I need to pay for this? You know, and 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 um, I could think of three amazing designers who are here who have, yeah. who, who are heroes. Who, sure. And they became heroic hybrids uh, because they circumvented university entirely. Mm, sure. I assume you embrace the term artist, and I've seen some people here who, who maybe struggle with that because there's there's a technical side and a, a creative side, and we're very different from the the sort of pre-existing art world. Is that a term that you like or um, embrace? I really don't want to think too much about words. Yeah. I, I think I want to think a lot about work, like yeah. what I'm interested in, what's interesting. Mm. You know, I kind of go back and forth on this rhetorically. Like on the one hand, um, I just posted on my YouTube uh, this fantastic video of uh, Jean Tangley um, saying that the entire term art is is bollocks, basically. And and, and <laughs> a nice English reference. Yeah, there. Well, yeah, yeah. It kind of got me <laughs> in that mood. You know, it's just basically he says it's bullshit. And yeah. and um, what he's interested in is poetry, you know, and and that's a much better word than this than this thing, which is the last three hundred years of it is a scam. <laughs> um, that on the other hand, I, I feel a lot of ownership for being an artist. That that um, it's an approach which which is different from from the realm of commercial design, for example, let's say. I, I also just think these categories are, are just stupid. I much yeah. rather think about like what's interesting right now, what's yeah. what needs to be done. A lot of the interesting stuff is between art and design, like stuck in the cracks. And so it doesn't make sense for me to call myself an artist or a designer. I, I often feel that like what, it all, what, what art and design ultimately boils down to nowadays, especially since the, the visual language is very similar, the materials that we use are very similar. Uh, you know, we're all sitting in front of a computer, right? I mean, it, yeah. It, <laughs> you know, that, that really what's, what's um, what matters there is, is um, it, sort of who you're doing it for and why. Yeah. And, that, and that, I think, this conference has been quite good at, at talking about. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you thanks, so much. Gala. You bet. So, um, so you might have noticed some fairly unsubtle editing of the swear words there. I'm sorry about that. I totally forgot to mention to go then that we uh, we have a clean rating on our podcast, um, but hopefully it wasn't too distracting for you. So finally, I spoke to Dave Schroeder. I cornered him. It was he was really you know the whole festival. I was just trying to get a hold of him because he was running around. He's actually such a nice guy, and he always looks really relaxed. But I know that he was he had a lot on his mind. Um, because I kept trying to just pull him aside for a, a couple of minutes to talk to him. But I finally managed to get a hold of him on the last night um, at the party <laughs> at um, Nye's Piano Karaoke Bar. I just uh, managed to drag him right outside uh, the bar and talk to him about um, IO Festival and how he set it up. First of all, I asked him if he was pleased with how it had been going. Really pleased, yeah. I think yeah. it went great. I think uh, there's some like phenomenal people here seeming to have a phenomenally good time and um and and the feedback i'm hearing and, and just seeing it, all the conversation going on there's just people that are uh getting what we were hoping they would get out of it and uh talking about stuff they're really into and getting new ideas and sharing ideas sharing you know ways to do stuff differently so what, what i'm interested in is how did this conference come about what gave you the idea how, how did it start 
Well, I mean, you know, I did the Flashbelt Conference for, for seven years before this, um, and bringing people together and, and that sort of thing is, is, has always been great, and people doing really cool things with technology is something I'm, I'm always in awe of and, and like to, uh, to see. And in that conference, we would always have, um, you know, a few people that would kind of talk and it didn't really matter what, what tools they were using. It was, it was really about the ideas and the, like kind of what they were thinking and how they were realizing these ideas. Um, and I always kind of, uh, this, this next step of, of having all the content kind of be a, about that, about um, it's, it's, it's agnostic in terms of what you're using to make something per se. It's more about what are you making? What, what are you thinking? Like how, where, where's the creative inspiration? Um, and, and then, of course, what tools are there? And, and I think here there's an incredible theme of people who've, who've thought about things they want to make and have the also the capacity to, to then build the tools themselves. People, like, inherently, like, we feel a lot of fulfillment by creating stuff. And I think that when we have all these people who are creating stuff and then also creating tools on top of that, like, they get that, that the world is better if more people are making stuff and realizing, you know, creative desires. You know, I want to see more people make more stuff because I think that's one of the things that makes us happiest. And, uh, and when we're happiest, we tend to, you know, the world's a better place really quite, quite simply. And I love that. And anything I can do to kind of help spread that stuff so that people get to experience that as well, like yeah. it's great, you know. I yeah. mean, I, I don't want to say let's make the world better through a, a conference, but if that's a... There's a little part of that, It's creating a good vibe. Yeah, if and, that happens, it's awesome, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and, and I think... You know, clearly you care about doing a good conference and there's lots of cool social events as well. I'm interested in the, the slight change in the, the format of this festival compared to Flashbelt. You know, what were some of the thoughts behind, you know, how you, how you organize the sessions? We wanted to, uh, we, well, we, first of all, we, like, we, we, we decided to call it kind of a festival. I mean, you know, Jeremy Thorpe, Wes Grubbs and Julian Dolce and I all kind of, they, we all made it happen. Yeah. And we got together in December and said like, hey, I said, I think I'm going to make do something. What should we do? And we said, like, what would be the coolest thing? How, you know, what's all the stuff that, like, we like about the conferences we go to? What's all the stuff we don't like? What are we going to, how are we going to just kind of, you know, improve? It's like, it's kind of like open source. Like, we've seen this stuff. What are we going to do to modify it to make it kind of, let's p pick and choose the cool stuff and things. And, and let's not worry about, like, any of the convention of the normal thing. Yeah. You know, we were, originally we were going to start a lot later in the day because, the, you know, the creative minds generally aren't, Aren't cranking at night. And some people seem to have but, been coding uh, all night as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. It's so, but it was definitely we we changed the, you know, we started calling it a festival instead of a conference, um, and that somehow that just like that that gave us the license to to have a schedule that had started later, had a lot more open space in it for people to spend time doing their own things and instigate conversations and actions activities. And then, you know, talks at night, which, you know, happens at other conferences. It's not, it's, but it's new from the, what, what I have done in the yeah. past. And, and it uh, seemed like quite an open schedule as well, right? With the, the sort of couple of keynote presentations at the front, then breaking out, and then a, a, a long lunch, and then some workshops. I thought it worked really well. Yeah, yeah. And also going to different venues in the evenings. That was interesting. It's, it's really nice to get people into different spaces. You know, if you sit in the same room all day long, you, your brain gets a little cooked. It just doesn't... It's in a zone you know, at some point. And you're getting all the stimulating information from conversations or presentations. And, um, you know, changing up the scenery, I think, helps make those things more memorable in a way. You know, you have a different context to associate that conversation with. There's different things to look at and talk about. 
Um, and, and I like the city a lot. I like to move people around the city. It's nice out. It's, it's June. It's sunny and warm. I was, so. um, I was interested in, in seeing how you marketed this event because I think whereas it, in the past it's been a very easy win to have a Flash conference, right? Because mm. everyone's like, oh, Flash, I do Flash, come to Flash. And it was where a lot of exciting stuff was happening. You know, I thought it would be a challenge for any conference organizers to do something like this because they don't really have one single label that they can identify with, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that something you worried about? A little bit. You know, I mean, I think one one amazing thing that has really changed the landscape, <clears throat> even though, like, I was not, like, an early, uh, a, a, like, adopter or even, like, believer in the world of Twitter, <laughs> is that is that, you know, with the Flash Belt, it was, like, one of the beautiful things was, yeah, it was, like, very... Easy to say, like, hey, that's your thing. This is your thing. Like, it's 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 the yeah. it's an A B thing. And with this, there we've got art, science, database. We got. I mean, the attendees are from NASA. They're from, you know, the Museum of Contemporary Art. They're, I mean, why are those two people at the same conference? It's pretty and, exciting, and, isn't and, it? and but you know, and, and how would those people find each other? But with Twitter, with kind of the tagging system, mm. you find some people you're interested in, and all of a sudden, like, once it goes out, there's this way for those people who are interested in all these things, no matter where they are, yeah. to find it. So it's a it, the way of spreading the word is, is is entirely, entirely different. And yeah, I think 10 years ago, four years ago, five years ago, like trying to figure out how to get the word out about something like this, it would have been a lot more complex, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, so, I certainly heard about it through Twitter and, and I know you and Jeff really well. I heard it yeah. on Twitter yeah. first. Um, and, and actually, all my training workshops, they're also, I ask people, how did you hear about it? It's Twitter. And yeah. I think a lot of people I've asked today have just been like Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. So, yeah. you know, and, and you actually told really fast, didn't you? Yeah, 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 six days, um, which, uh, yeah, is, is astonishing, you know. It's and, uh, you know, and, and we, we, we knew when we kind of announced that we were doing it, that was like a week, about a month before we started to sell uh, tickets. The, the interest like spiked. There was a lot, a lot of interest like right away. So we we kind of knew we're onto something good. I Welcome. think that was probably the secret to its success, right? That you did literally get every single leading name in our industry. I mean, there's no no one who was a, a, an international leader in this field. Yeah, I think um, yeah, that's a huge part of that. I mean, the, the, I mean, how did you manage it, it, to get? that um i mean jeremy thorpe without a doubt you know is kind of our, our the content curator he knows a lot of these people personally works with them um so that's like without a doubt you know his his as he told me like i know who we can get and i'll call in some favors because i love flash belt i know we can do something really cool um i don't know if calling in some favors is the right <laughs> phrase but he but uh but, but he, he managed but he certainly has, he had experience he trusted you he could sell it he could sell this yeah he said believe to, yeah. believe in 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 we're putting this event together believe in it it's going to be cool get on board and trust me and, and and to all the speakers credit you know like they they all did everyone yeah. we asked uh said yes yeah he must um, be he must be like popular or something uh, yeah, or well, he's, be charming he's who knows very likable guy yeah. <laughs> and he's and he can be convincing as well yeah of course <laughs> and, and one thing i noticed that i mean i assume this was a a side effect of having sold out so quickly was that there weren't any large corporate sponsors yeah. on, on the on the program. There were, but that was kind of a part of the design going into it as well. Um, you know, I, I uh, the the, uh, the first year I did the Flash Belt conference, I thought I'll get a bunch of sponsors and we can sell tickets really cheap and it'll be work out. We'll you know we'll break even. It won't be a, a crazy endeavor. And uh, and the opposite turned out to be true. Where actually it's. In my opinion, it's it's easier to sell another ticket 
to sell five tickets than get somebody to be a sponsor. And in the end, then you're not beholden to anyone other than to give the attendees like a, a great kick-ass conference. And so I, I kind of think like there's tons, there's you know five, there's 400, 500 sponsors who each bought a ticket. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's like it's kind of more of a Kickstarter. And well, and for this, we were once once it was out there and uh, and really even after it was sold out, that's when the Ford Foundation, um, Seed Magazine, and visually those guys, they kind of all approached us and yeah. people in those organizations had bought tickets already and thought like. We want to support this. We want to see a little bit more of this, and it's a great place for us to be. But that's a it's a very different relationship than kind of going out and and stalking your sponsors, um, and, and and they uh, have less say about what you do as well. Yeah, to a degree, you know. And, and uh, I mean, I've dealt with a lot of, of companies and sponsors over the years that have been great and don't ask that much. But as you would expect, there's a responsibility to those sponsors as once they become these financial sponsors, which. Um, you know, I just kind of like I like being independent, fast, and dynamic, and and I, I think the more you can maintain that situation without having kind of stipulations based on on, on these kind of dependencies on sponsors and stuff like that, um, the more you're able to just kind of do what feels right. I mean, I assume that um, you're going to do it again, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it'd be... my official response to that has shifted in the last uh, two hours from. Um, um, I don't see it. Uh, two hours ago, it was, I, I don't see any reason why not to. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and then it shifted to, uh, yeah, very most likely. Yeah, sure. So we're closer. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, you've I, really seemed to have hit something really good, right? So. Yeah, well. Um, is, is, it, yeah. is it similar? Um, I know you always said about Flashbelt that you never wanted it to go above a certain size. I assume that that's, you still feel that yeah, way. Yeah, scale is really important. This, this lineup with 2,000 attendees would still would be a different conference I yeah. mean I, you, people would get great stuff out of the talks but I, I, my, my take on conferences is is you know now you can go online and see a conference talk and then watch the video and get that part of the experience without too much trouble I mean you miss out on some Q&A but, but what you don't get and the reason people sh- like I want to get people together is these magic moments happen in the conversation in between yeah. the talks and in the brains in the room and the excitement in the room and, uh, you and know, in the karaoke piano, yeah, bar. and the, yeah, and in the bar, <laughs> and like on the bocce court, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like, sure. You know, I mean, getting people, these people who are interested in all this stuff, to then play together yeah. in some other way, something you, can, you just can't, you, you can't synthesize that, or and you can't scale it up either, the, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I guess that's why you know Flashbelt was you know it was my favorite <laughs> conference, right? It really, absolutely was for all of those reasons. So I'm really pleased that you managed to change yeah, it up into something that that covers more stuff and and sell it I think you've done a really good job so well done Dave you should be proud oh, thanks sir thanks. and thanks for taking yeah. the time to talk to me I know it's a bit Course, longer man. than we said but you've it was been, really really interesting oh, so thank you thanks man you've always been one of my favourite guys it was, oh. always, uh, I'm glad you could come to this too. I'm going to leave all this in <laughs> so yes you heard it here first uh, a, a creative coding podcast exclusive IO Festival will most likely happen again next year <laughs> I find that really interesting um, how Dave's just completely changed uh, Flashbelt entirely into this new thing with the new format. I, I thought it worked really well. He, he had all these different venues in the evening sessions and it was a much looser format than most conferences. He, you know, We'd start at um, a bit later than normal and there'd be a few kind of sessions where everyone was in and then we'd break out into different sessions and then in the afternoon there were workshops and tours of studios and stuff so yeah I I really enjoyed it it was cool 
So is it ready for our brand new feature now? Um, if you like. I think, come on Ian, this is cool. We've never had a feature before. <laughs> okay, cool. So this is... A recurring item. There's a better name than a feature, isn't there? But I can't think what it is. I think a feature is fine. An item, a regular segment. And I, a regular, yeah. Now a regular segment. So this is um, based on a talk that I kind of gave at a little mini conference here in Cornwall. And I kind of wrote it the night before the, the conference. But it seemed to be very popular. I thought it was brilliant. Thanks. I mean, if you've seen the YouTube video, you can see like the reaction uh, from the audience was absolutely insane. Like, I've never had as many like laughs and cl applause and stuff. Yeah, they're a good audience. Yeah, but, but we we don't want to point them at the video because otherwise it will ruin it for the next. No, few that's not true because this is a kind of we're going to be more discursive in this, aren't we? Uh, I see. Okay, cool. All right, things that Ian has learned. Go. 10 years, 30 lessons. Okay, this is lesson one. Uh -huh. Never turn down a public speaking opportunity. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, I'm sure this is one that obviously you would agree with. I do agree with it. I mean, it, you do get a lot out of it. Like the, the example I gave in the original talk was that um, when I did Flash on the Beach last year, I spent a lot of time researching. I spent about two weeks like researching and building my demos and stuff that I kind of took off work to do yeah. that. And it was like a mini sabbatical to just prepare all that stuff. It's true. And actually, even though the actual conference, like no one came up to me afterwards and go, hey, do you want a million pounds or whatever? <laughs> what I learned researching all that stuff has actually been the most valuable thing. And yeah. that's kind of informed everything I've done afterwards. So I think it just puts you in a different kind of frame of mind as well, doesn't it? And it really forces you to consider your own kind of views and uh, and feelings and and knowledge right because you mm. if you're going to say something you have to be absolutely sure that it's <laughs> it's right, right. yeah and, and if it's not right then that's also good because you learn pretty quick that it's not right <laughs> mm. i mean do you think there's an argument that it's not for everyone because not everyone is particularly extroverted some some people just just don't like it right some people yeah. can't do it um you know i guess that's fine but i do I think th there's lots of benefit to be had from from being from getting that 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 ability and, and really you know there's a turning point in my life that i can trace back i think it's pretty much six years ago to the day that i was at flash forward in new york and i wasn't speaking there i was just attending but i met the people from flash coders new york and then i came back to new york and just spoke at their little user group you know, and that was kind of the first time I did the particles presentation, mm -hmm. which then I went on to do at numerous conferences. So those, even if it seems like a really small thing, those things can always lead to bigger things too. So sure, I don't know. I definitely think it's worth doing. Those were the days when you could do a conference session just about particles. I, I'm still doing that. Anyway. <laughs> oh, really? oh, sorry. Have so people not seen it all before now with particles though? Not the JavaScript people. No, sure. Yeah, you just changed your audience, I guess. I've just switched it. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, so next point. <laughs> Number two. Network, or you could say network, 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 if you really wanted to emphasise it. Yeah, it's important, right? Yeah. Where do you do most of your networking? At conferences. Mm. Would you say you Twitter? do more in person than online? Um, it's very hard to kind of make a connection online. I think um, it definitely helps if you, do a, if you do that part of it in real life. Mm. It's easier now where we have Twitter. Yeah, Twitter helps, but it's like, you know, I, I've been chatting to Daniel Schiffman on Twitter and even on email, but it didn't really click until I met him, right? And we got on really well sure. and, and I now think having it's that, different. It's having that Having that grounding in knowing someone on Twitter before you meet them is really a huge icebreaker. Yeah, definitely. And you, I've found that, like, people that, you know, I've, I know from forums and Twitter and things like that, when we meet in real life, we can instantly just start talking to each other and we've got a huge frame of reference in that we know you know you know what that other person's like a bit yeah 
So, so where do you do all your networking? Um, mostly Twitter and yeah. on... In real like, life? Yeah, real life. Um, extended play. That was on last night. That's getting really good in Plymouth. Oh, cool. Um, so that's your meet-up in, in Cornwall? It's in Plymouth, in Plymouth, which is in South Devon, which is just yeah. on the border between Devon and Cornwall, really. But, um, yeah, last night we had a guy who came and he built an Atari 2600 game last year in Assembler. That blows my mind. Yeah. So did he? Did he? You can get like programmable cartridges, right? You can. He hasn't got one though. But peeps, other people have put put it on there. But he hasn't got one. He doesn't have an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. But um, he's <laughs> you mean, got... what? Why not? Huh? I mean, I think I've got about three in my cupboard. You should donate him one. It's a very worthy cause. He does have T-shirts, and he's got like a, an Atari Twenty Six Hundred box art for it and stuff. You know what? I think I just gave my Atari Twenty Six Hundred away to like build bright in the hacker space. Oh, cool. Okay. So, I don't know, maybe I could but, um, go and grab it and give it to him instead. He showed it last night on, on my PC on an emulator, but he's also had it running on, like, the Wii Atari 2600 emulator and on the Xbox. I'll send him my Atari if he, if he still needs it, because that's <laughs> okay. really important. Cool. So, if you're yeah, making I mean, games on that system, then he needs to have one. <laughs> right, that's just silly otherwise. <laughs> sure, but um, the guy's name is um, Jamie Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, who created this Atari 2600 game, which is called The Wicked Father. Okay. And he was inspired by a book which was called Racing the Beam. Yes, I know about this book. And it's by the guy that made Pitfall, right? Yeah, I think it's the guy that made Pitfall who also made quite a cool iPhone, iPad app, which was all about the, the little hacks and the techniques that he, he used to have to employ in order to get his games to run. It was really interesting. Super geeky, of course. And and I think something to do with like the technique was like as the, the scan lines moved across the screen he'd changed the visual memory, so it meant that he could have, like, different colours in different parts of the screen, which the Atari couldn't actually do by itself. Yeah, that's it, basically. It's like <laughs> you had to know at what point through the scan lines you were and you did different things. So it was like you, you, didn't, you didn't kind of draw, you know, you didn't kind of create one frame and then render it. You yeah. actually kind of were constantly racing against yeah, that's right, the yeah. scan line of the, of the TV, which I find absolutely insane. Yeah, it was written by um, Nick Montford and Ian Bogost. Right, okay, cool. Cool. That's good. Have we got a- another thing that you learned, or is, yeah, is that do... it? Okay, so that was a bit of a tangent, wasn't it? I um, liked it. Okay, people aren't vo- motivated by money. I think some people are, but I, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I have certainly been motivated by money in the past, but it always goes wrong when I yeah. am. Yeah, yeah. And it wears off very quickly, so if you... I agree, totally. If, I... You know, if, if something comes along and it looks like a very attractive offer um, to do something but you kind of have suspicions that it might be, you might be letting yourself into it for a nightmare. Yeah. Sometimes the amount of money can be a red flag. It's like someone says, you know, do you want to go and install, you know, IT systems in Iraq or whatever? We'll pay you, <laughs> we'll pay you 10 grand a month. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not worth it. And in a lesser scale, like things that, things that pay well are often things like fixing old broken so- software and things like yeah. that, which you just don't want to get involved in. Sorry, the other way to look at it is that if you're in, in a team or running a team or have a company and then have employees, it's really important to create a nice atmosphere to work in, yeah. for them to work in. That's much more important than kind of offering them more money. Sure. You know, make, you, know you want people to want to come into work, really. That's going to be a, a much... Because the thing about money is that it doesn't breed any loyalty because if someone yeah. makes them a better financial offer, they'll just go with that. I mean, there are, there are some people who, who genuinely can be motivated by money. I'm just... But I've got this huge, huge personality flaw in that I find it incredibly difficult to do something I don't want to do. 
So, <laughs> yeah. no, I have that exact thing as well. I know exactly uh, what you mean. I, so, so, I feel physically sick actually if I yeah. if I try and do something that my brain doesn't want me to do. Yeah, I, I think. But on, on one hand, it's kind of you know it makes it kind of hard to be us. But on the other hand, it's like it's quite good because it means that you you your life by very necessity, by absolute necessity, changes everything you do changes to the point where you only do things that you really enjoy doing, mm. and you somehow have to work out how to make that pay sure. enough for you to live off. So just by the, the the fact that you have no choice, you sort of have to make that work. But I I think it's probably quite a good strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about kids, right? Like, yeah. You know. When I was a kid, I would just spend all day daydreaming and, you know, doing yeah. playing the games that I wanted to play and stuff. Uh-huh. And, you know, and then they stick you in school or whatever, and then you suddenly have to do all this horrible stuff. Yeah. And that's what it feels like for me doing a project that my heart's not in. Yeah. It feels like school. And, and, I mean, some, and then some kids actually like the structure of school, and those kinds of people make great, you know, employees. Bankers. But I think people, <laughs> other people like me, unfortunately, don't. Yeah, no, no, me, me. Unless me someone's I, I listening to this really. in five years' time, when I've applied for a job somewhere, in which case I do make a brilliant employee. No, you can just say that you, at that point. You can just say, yeah. See, although you can just be like, yeah, I'm not really interested in money, but your your job opportunity looks really amazing. <laughs> oh, but by the way, I need loads of money. <laughs> yeah, maybe this isn't a good strategy for your future career path. Who knows? Okay, so the next one is... That was is, good. The Hang next on, one I is think, a follow-on. Th- th- well, we can't leave it there because the next okay. one is a, a follow-on. All right, okay, good. Um, Number which four. Which is people want to do meaningful work. Yeah. Which is kind of related, but... Meaningful also, is kind of a, a, a fairly fluffy term, though, right? How do mm, you mean? It only has to be meaningful to you. It doesn't have to be meaningful necessarily to the world. I but, see. But maybe for some people, actually only doing work that actually changes the world will be enough to satisfy them. Yeah. Is that the same as just wanting to do things? Is that the same as not doing things for money and doing things that you want to do? Well, because no, because you could you could want to just, you know, play all day or, you know, do nothing. Yeah. But actually, people would rather do meaningful work than do nothing. Yeah, more than no, just, I agree. You want to feel productive, right? Yeah, exactly. No one you wants to You want to feel like you're doing time. stuff that people like. Hmm. Yeah, you know, what did, Steve Jobs says that he wanted to, like, put, what is it, put a dent in the universe? Or? Okay, well, that, that was cool. I really enjoyed that first, that first, well, I don't even know what to call it, episode? Just call it a segment. Segment. The first segment, the first, <laughs> things that Ian has learned. I enjoyed it. Nice one, Ian. Great. Okay, more of that next time. We'll, we'll keep going. And we shouldn't say there are 30 because you might learn some more things as we're mm. doing it. Yeah, I can yeah. just add them on to the end. You of can the add them on at the end. PowerPoint and then... It's pretty cool. Great. I think we need to wrap it up because we've, yeah, um, we we've gone pretty long. For so technical reasons. Yes. Um, so what have you got coming up? Um, nothing especially. No? Um, don't know what to say, really. Not going to be not speaking at Flash on the Beach. Are you going? Officially. I may be going. Yeah. It's not 100% yet. I may be going. Well, it's, um, it's pretty cool. That, um, Flash on the Beach is part of now. There's uh, the Brighton Digital Festival, which is events throughout September including Deconstruct and Aral's Update Conference, which I'm speaking at as well, by the way. I have to do a session all about Corona. <laughs> Can we have a crazy. special sound effect that we play when you plug a talk? Like ding or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, I don't know. Yeah, sure. I'll put it in in post. Um, <laughs> but the Brighton Festival, it looks really, really cool. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening, mm. so check that out. I think it's brightondigitalfestival.co.uk. Great. Um, and, but I do have some good news on Flash on the Beach, which is that uh, our friend Tom Vian oh, yeah. has announced his talk, and it's basically the talk I would have given. Oh, cool. What's he talking so about? So he's talking about game engines. Okay. 
comparing the ones that exist and then what do you need to do to make your own one. Yeah, that sounds cool. In the context of Flash, this is better. It kind of saves you the effort. Yeah, I mean, obviously no two people would give the same talk in the same way, but <laughs> at least thematically it's covered, so that's cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, I've got uh, a JavaScript conference in New York, I think on Saturday, called Gotham JS. And then I'm heading out to Kansas City for D2W, the Design and Developer Workflow Conference. Um, and then I'm coming back to, to England. I know that's going to be a weird culture shock, but I do miss mm. Brighton, of course. Um, and I'm going to be setting up some more Creative JS workshops in Brighton for late August and late September. Great. All right, well, I guess that's it for episode 11. Yep, thanks, guys. Um, we will see you next time. Yeah, don't forget to tweet. Because, oh, yeah, that's what I wanted to say, actually, at IO Festival. I, I had so many people come up and say, oh, I love your podcast. That's lovely to hear, isn't it? Like, it was really amazing, all these people that listen to us. Yeah. And I never realised. So, you know, and give us some feedback. Do you know why I think that is? I think that's because of our inclusive attitude to technology. <laughs> do you know what I mean, though? I don't know. It's like... You know, we don't limit ourselves to talking about one technology. We're not tribalistic and stuck in a particular world, right? I, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons. I hope there's a bit more to it than that. <laughs> but who knows? Sure. It was certainly really nice to get a lot of feedback and, um, yeah. and to, to see that actually that there are some actual people behind these numbers that we get every every week yeah yeah absolutely so it's brilliant yeah. um, so we love yeah. to hear from you um, so tweet with the creative coding hashtag or just write a comment on our blog at creativecodingpodcast.com brilliant thanks for listening bye bye <laughs>